Lord, to think that someday we will be with you, whether it's in heaven or on the new earth. And when we've been there 10,000 years, it will be as if it was nothing but a day. And we will be able to freely worship you in a world that is no longer under a curse. There's no more sin, no more senseless violence, no more suffering. And we'll be able to come and freely worship you in your holy city. I thank you that you have given us, your children, a hope, a future, an inheritance, a purpose. Even though we live in a lost and dying world, we have a hope and we can offer that hope to other people. And so, Lord, would you build us up for that very purpose that we may glorify you, that you may be exalted in us as we take your message to a lost and dying world. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. In December of 1991, uh, I was living in Chardon, Ohio. Um, I just met Erica in October of 91. Um, And I had a friend of mine that had graduated a year before me at Ohio University, and they were getting married. And so I went to this friend's wedding. I had to drive, it was like over an hour, I think, south to where the ceremony was. Um, And it was, you know, a a typical wedding ceremony. Uh, You had... Uh, the procession, uh, the pastor's opening remarks, the exchange of the vows, you know, it goes the message, the exchanging of the rings, the pronouncement of marriage, the kiss, the presentation of the newly married couple, the closing remarks, and then the recessional. Um, Then what happens after that is the guests are what? They're released to go to the reception. While what happens during the reception or before and during part of the recession, or reception. Pictures are taken, exactly. Uh, now, in order to keep the guests from waiting uh, too long, so many pictures are taken before the ceremony, but not for this couple. So I got to the reception along with everybody else, and I waited, and they started to bring out the food, and they, we slowly had the food brought out to us, and it was, and one hour went by. No sign of any but in the wedding party. So like the first course of the meal was brought to us and we began eating and then I was looking at my watch and other people were and second hour went by. Nobody had come from the wedding party at all. In between the second and third hour, we started to see slowly coming in were the members of the wedding party. It took this couple three hours to take their wedding pictures while we waited. And uh, needless to say, you know me well enough, do you think I waited around long after that for the newlywed couple when they arrived? And I wasn't the only one. Because if, you know, as you know, the reception is a way to thank those who have come because you ask people to come and they're coming to do what? To give you a gift in your marriage. And so it's really for them and so on and so forth. Um... 
know, what surprised me about this wedding, other than the fact that it was like, you made us wait three hours, really? Um, was that it's like every other wedding, though. Each event was carefully planned in advance by a wedding coordinator, wedding planner, and the couple. I thought to myself, did they plan to keep their guests waiting for three hours while they took pictures? Because that wasn't a good move. And it got me thinking that I would like for you guys and for myself to think of the, the order of events uh, for the end times. It's, it's like a wedding. Okay? And every event has been pre-planned by God the Father for the end times. Not only by Him, by the Son and the Spirit as well. And He will execute these events in His timing. And so, I want to talk about, we'll finish up talking about on part three, the day of the Lord. You got that, Lloyd? That's the title of the sermon. The day of the Lord, part three. Anyways, here's the order of events. And so if you want to take these notes, you can write these down. This is, we'll go through these really quickly. There's 15 events that we'll get up to this morning. Um, and the first thing is where we are right now. We are observing the general signs. And we've been through this. I don't need to go through this. And of course, what are the signs? False Christ, wars, rumors of wars. Okay, there'll be persecutions, apostasies, and all that. Um, the abomination of desolation, or that would be the revealing of who the Antichrist is. I didn't have enough space in here, but you could put Second Thessalonians up here as well, where it talks about that person being revealed, where he will demand to be worshipped after a time of peace. There's a, a great tribulation that follows that, that Jesus plainly mentions, an increase in intensity of all of these signs. Okay? And these are just a general sequence of events, whether they follow this exact order, it's not for some debate, but these are things that we should at least know. Uh, there'll be a battle of Armageddon gathered in uh, Israel, a bloody battle. Then there'll be the sign of the Son of Man. And of course, what's that sign? What will the scriptures say? Heaven will open. And then we'll, what, will we, what will we be able to see next? A bright light. It'll be the shining we call it the Shekinah glory, the shining of, of the very Son of God. He's no longer necessarily veiled in, in flesh. And so it, it just... And by the way, the, some of the signs... What is the sign of the, the Son of Man? Is that the moon is darkened. There's, the sun is darkened. It's a blackened background. And that black background, God's dimmed the light. His sun, heaven opens up. The sun comes. And of course, who comes with him? His angels and his saints, those who are dead in Christ. Okay? It's his army. Okay? The resurrection of those dead in Christ. Those are the people that, that we would say are in heaven with, with Jesus right now. Okay, they're going to come with him. And they're going to be, their bodies will be resurrected and united with them as they come with him. Those who happen to be alive on the earth at this time, they are then caught up and meet the Lord in the air. And they, their bodies are transformed to a glorified body as well. Now what's a glorified body? It's a body like Adam and Eve before sin that it can live forever, okay? It's like the body of Jesus Christ after it was resurrected, a glorified body. That's your destiny as a believer. You're not going to sit there and rot in the ground. You will live forever in the presence of God on a, a new heaven and a new earth, okay? Roughly around this time as he is coming down, the battle of Armageddon has, has taken place, and there are going to be some Jews who are alive, and they are a remnant in Israel, and they're going to believe. This is what Zechariah talks about. There's going to be a worldwide panic when he returns as well. Remember what the scriptures say? The rest of the world 
they're going to go into what? Hiding. Hiding. They know judgment's coming. Okay? Jesus will step down in the Mount of Olives. We believe that that's exactly where he's going to uh, step down because he said, the angel said, why are you looking up to heaven as he was ascended into heaven? Why are you looking to heaven? He's going to come down the same place. When he comes down, when his foot, his feet literally touch the ground, there's going to be a, a massive seismic earthquake. And it's going to split the Mount of Olives in two, and it's going to go north and south and create this big flat valley for about 40 miles. Okay? And that's what is called the Valley of Decision. Okay? We can see it here in many other verses that talk about it. And we'll talk about why it's called the Valley of Decision this morning. This valley, by the way, you know, some of you weren't here. Here's the Mount of Olives. Here is Jerusalem. There's a valley in between. This mountain is going to go way north and north and south. There was no exit because the, the Mediterranean Sea is over here. So the people will be able to flee from this battle through this valley that Jesus created. So they're going to flee through the valley. We can see that here. Okay. Then the Lord and his armies join the battle. There's going to be panic in destruction of the world's armies. Okay? Oftentimes in the Old Testament, when God enters a battle, but hap- how does he do it? Well, with, for example, with Gideon, what did he do? He sent the opposing armies into a panic. They started destroying themselves. Okay? This is what will happen, we believe, as Zechariah prophesies. After the victory, the very spoils that the world's armies were celebrating in Jerusalem, they're going to be given back to Jerusalem, and there's going to be a sharing of those spoils. And then Jerusalem will be dramatically changed. And we talked about that, and this is where we left off last week. Um, so get your Bibles out and turn to Zechariah 14, verses 8 and 10. Verses 8 and, and 10, yes. Or get your phone out. Zechariah is, is towards the, the end of the Bible, just right before the New Testament. All these events that we, we were talking about, and again, I'm giving you a little interpretation of Zechariah, um, have all been pre-planned by God. Zechariah 14, verse 8, And in that day... It says, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem. The day is the day of the Lord, which is referring to his second coming. Half of them toward the eastern sea, the other half toward the western sea. What's the eastern sea from Jerusalem? The Dead Sea, the the Salty Sea, right? What's the sea towards the west? Mediterranean, okay? And it's going to be in summer as well as winter. Jump to verse 10. It says, all the land will be changed into a plain. So all those mountainous area, the mountain's going to split, create this valley, okay? And that plain is called Arabah, that's what the word means. It's going to go from Geba to Rimmon. I told you that that is about a 40-mile long area that's south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem, which has been under attack, and then at his coming, it's just torn apart by this massive earthquake, it's going to rise. Think about it. Here's this mountain, and here's these other mountains, and here's Jerusalem. And the, he steps and just creates this massive valley. And everything around it becomes flat, but Jerusalem is pushed up. Okay? And why would it be pushed up? And why is it pushed up? 
where will he dwell? Where will Jesus Christ dwell when he's on the earth now? In Jerusalem. And it's, it's his city, right? The city of David. That's where he's going to rule. So he's going to reign. It'll be exalted and lifted up. Look what it says there. But Jerusalem will what? Rise. See that? And remain on its site from Benjamin's gate as far as the place, the first gate to the corner gate, from the Tower of Hananel to the king's wine press. Now, I'm going to give you something a little extra here to give you an idea. Turn your Bibles to Ezekiel 47. Stay at Zechariah 14 with your finger, but go to Ezekiel 47. Okay? Because it's, there's a talk about this water, and I want to talk about this water for a moment, just to give you um, further details of this living water and what life will be like in his kingdom when he reigns. Ezekiel is given a vision and is taken to the temple. And in Ezekiel 47.1, it says this, and he's at the temple, then, then he brought me back to the door of the house, that's the temple, and behold, water was flowing from under the threshold of the house or the temple toward the east, that sound familiar? Where's the east? The Dead Sea. For the house faced east, and the water was flowing down from under, from the right side of the house, from south of the altar. Of course, the altar is obviously what? What's the altar? Think of Indiana Jones. Remember that? Yeah, the ark, yeah, the altar. He brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate by way of the gate that faces east. And behold, water was trickling from the north side. And we're not going to look at verses 3 through 5, but... It says here that water is flowing from the east and the south. Verses 3 through 5 in Ezekiel 47 describe the, just the abundance of water that rises from the ankles and grows to a large flowing river that it's just, you can't even swim across it. Um, now, verse 6, we'll pick it up. He describes the effects of this life-giving water. Look at this. He said to me, verse 6, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he brought me back to the bank of the river. And see, it's now a river. Now when I had returned, behold, on the bank of the river there were many trees, on the one side and on the other. Then he said to me, these waters go out toward the eastern region and go down into the Arabah. What's the Arabah again? That's that plain, that's that flat valley about 40 miles that he created. That they go toward the sea, being made to flow into the sea. And what sea is it flowing into if it's flowing east? The Dead Sea, look what happens to the Dead Sea, and the waters of the sea become what? Fresh. Fresh. It's going to change. Did you know that? It's going to change. Okay. So, the Arabah is the plain created when our Lord touches down the Mount of Olives. The dry desert, and this is a desert area, folks, is all of a sudden, it's becoming inundated with water. That flows into the salty dead sea and turns the water into fresh water. Look what else happens, verse 9. It will come about that every living creature which swarms in every place where the river goes will live. And there will be very many fish, for these waters go there and the others become fresh. So wherever this water goes, it turns whatever sort of water there is into what? Fresh water. So everything will live where the river goes. And obviously this is a picture of what? Life. He comes again, and all of a sudden, what is raining now? Life. Verse 10, And it will come about that fishermen will stand beside it, 
from En Gedi to Eniglaim, there will be a place for the spreading of nets. Their fish will be according to their kinds, like the fish of the great sea, very many. I'm assuming the great sea is probably the Mediterranean Sea. Either way, the point being is that this water that brings life, this is water that brings life that is full of abundant fish, which of course results in food for humanity. So now we're seeing only life, we're seeing where there's life, there is abundance. Okay, verse 11. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. By the river on its banks, on one side and on the other, and this is again, this water, this river that flows, when he touches down the Mount Olives, it splits open, the valley is created, this water comes up, a river is created, and the desert, which was once bone dry, is now going to be teeming with life, vegetation, very lush. Does that sound like a place that existed before sin? Probably in that area called the Garden of Eden? Okay. So, the but the swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They'll be left for salt. By the river on its bank, on one side and on the other, will grow all kinds of watches trees for food. Their leaves will not wither. Why won't they wither? Because there's water there. And their fruit will not fail. They will bear every month because their water flows from the sanctuary and their fruit will be for food, and watch this, in their leaves for healing. So when he comes again, the life-giving river that flows from the sanctuary, it says it feeds trees that consistently provide food, and its leaves are used for healing. So we see symbols of abundance, of life, and of healing. They preview, generally speaking, what life will be like in his kingdom. Life, abundance, healing. And folks, I should have got an amen out of that. Come on. <laughs> right? Is that a good thing? Okay, well, good. You're awake. So he defeated his enemies. Jerusalem's being changed. Roughly these events, simultaneously or whatever, they're happening. The next thing that happens is what we call the coronation of the king. Okay. Look at Zechariah 14, verse 9. He came as a suffering servant in a, as a, in a humblest form as a, a child, his first coming. His second coming, Jesus is, is returning as a king and a conquering king. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one in his name, the only one. So after Christ arrives, he defeats his enemies his coronation takes place. He'll be king not only in heaven, but also on earth. And his return to reign over an earthly kingdom is a promised reality. He promised it, and now it's a reality. There will be one Lord in his name, one, that is. There will be one religion. That's it. In the entire world in his kingdom. His defeat of his enemies ensures the end of of all false religions that, of course, have been spawned by who? Satan, to deceive the nations, exactly. He'll be coronated and, and, and begin his rule as king over all the earth. And what will he do next? 
here. The judgment of the sheep and goats. Now get your Bibles out. Go to Matthew chapter 25. Because we'll go back to Zechariah 14. But I just want to give you kind of like an order of events so you know. And I'm not going to make, make you wait three hours while I take my wedding pictures, okay? There's going to be a judgment. It's a very specific judgment, a unique judgment. It's called the judgment of the sheep and goats. Verse 31, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory, we know what that is, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him. Okay, what nations are going to be there? All of them, and the ones who have been what? Battling him, right? And attacking Israel. And he will separate them from one another. As the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This is what awaits Christians. This kingdom is prepared for who? You, us, exactly. Since when? Yeah, the world, exactly. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Verse 37. Then the righteous will answer, these are the sheep. Lord, when did we see you hungry, and feed you, or thirsty, and give you something to drink? And when did we see, see you as a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison or come to you? So they're thinking literally, okay? They're not getting it, all right? So he says, the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine. This is why we call ourselves brothers and sisters in Christ, okay? Whatever you do to any of them, helping them out, you're doing to who? To Jesus, okay? To the extent that you did to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on his left, the goats, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. So again, think of a wedding, right? There's an order of events, all pre-planned. The kingdom is, is pre-planned for who? Us, believers. Hell, the eternal fire, was pre-planned for who? Yes. Very good. For I was hungry, and you gave me, verse 42, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also answer, Lord, and this is what they're calling him now. What are they calling him? Lord. Okay. When did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it 
to me. And let me just say this as well. In Matthew chapter 7, there will be people alive that are going to stand before him, and what are they going to say to him? Lord, Lord, did we not do this in your name and that in your name? And we thought we were believers, and we were not. They found out they're not. It says, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. That's the judgment of the sheep and goats. So it's, it's about who gets into the kingdom. That's it. There's no rewards or anything. It's just who gets into the kingdom. Now, you want to know where this happens? Well, you can just listen to this. And you want to write this verse down, you can. It's Joel chapter 3, verses 9 through 14. Where does this happen? It says, Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare a war, rouse the mighty men, let all the soldiers draw near, let them come up. That's talking about the battle of Armageddon. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a mighty man. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Now bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. He's talking about coming in with his army, his angels, his saints. Let the nations be aroused and come up to, watch this, the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. That judgment that he's talking about in the valley of Jehoshaphat, which you're going to see in a moment here, is the valley of decision, is referring to the judgment of the sheep and goats that happens when he returns. Okay? For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations, Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, tread, for the wine press is full, the vats overflow. For their wickedness is great. Now watch this, verse 14. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. The valley of Jehoshaphat is a valley of decision. That's the valley that's created when? When he steps down the Mount of Olives in a massive earthquake and separates the Mount of Olives and creates that valley, the Arabah, that great plain. For the day of the Lord, that's his coming, is near in the valley of decision. So where does this judgment take place? In the valley of decision that was created when he stepped down at his second coming. Now, when our Lord's feet touch down and the Malvolves is split into from north to south in a valley spanning east to west is created, the city of Jerusalem is torn apart. But it's also raised up as all their mountains and hills are flattened by this earth-shaking seismic event. And that valley, of course, is the valley of decision. Now, what does it mean it's the valley of decision? It's not a valley where people make a decision. It's a valley where God makes a decision. This is the day of the Lord. The day of man has now ceased. This is why it's called over and over again the day of the Lord. God makes his decision, because the day of man is now past. In other words, there will be no time for decisions by any human being. It's too late. The decision is whether you go into the kingdom or you're shut out. And that's God's decision, because he knows his own. And this is exactly why Jesus said a few verses earlier in Matthew 25, in the parable of the virgins. you remember that? Let me read this to you, verses 1 through 12. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil and flasks among with their lamps. 
Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout, Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. That's referring to what when the bridegroom comes? His second coming, right? So the whole idea here, you need to be ready for his coming. Verse 7, Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps to get ready for him. The foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us and for you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those, and watch this, who were ready, went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. The door was shut. Later the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. In other words, you better have oil before the bridegroom comes, because when the bridegroom comes, if you don't have oil, you can't run out and get it because the door will be shut and you won't get in. Again, there's no second chance anymore than there is after death. That's the valley of decision. That's what he creates when he comes. And it's all, you see, the whole Bible starts to fit together. Okay? Now, Isaiah even tells us specifically where he will be sitting, by the way, when he judges the nations. In Isaiah 9, 7, just listen to this. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David, there it is, over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish it. In the valley of decision, on the throne of David, and of course, where's the throne of David? It's in Jerusalem, in the rebuilt city of Jerusalem. He will reign and judge. This is where he will separate the sheep who are believers to his right, which is the place of blessing, from the goats, unbelievers, on his left. The righteous go into eternal life, and the unrighteous into eternal punishment. You with me so far? Okay. That being said, this is why we don't believe that the day of the Lord is an actual 24-hour day. I think it's going to take a little bit longer than that, but it's more of a period of time. But these are things that, that Zechariah tells us. Now I'll go back to Zechariah in your Bibles, or if you're there, just stay there. Verse 14, chapter 14, verse 12. Zechariah, now this is fascinating. It's scary, but it's absolutely fascinating what happens next. So he's, he's come, all right, defeated his enemies. Uh, Jerusalem has changed, it's being rebuilt. He's on his throne, he's coordinated as king, and he's judging. Verse, chapter 14, verse 12, describes how unbelievers go into eternal punishment. Now this will be like the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet, and their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouth. It is God who gives life, and it is God who can withdraw life, as well the theologians, as they've studied this, what they believe. I believe that they say that God at this point will withdraw life so fast from the unbelieving that they will rot and become skeletons before they're able to even fall to the ground. Because where are they going? Punishment. 
with the elimination of Israel's enemies and the Lord Jesus on his throne in Jerusalem, there will finally be peace. Look at verse 11. People will live in it, meaning the city of Jerusalem. There will no longer be a curse, for Jerusalem will dwell in security. And boy, does that not mean a lot right now with what's going on in Israel. What an incredible day for Jerusalem. There'll be no more destruction, no more curse, no more idolatry, and no more apostasy. Not only will the Lord be crowned on that day, but the city of Jerusalem itself will be crowned and become the jewel of the earth. What we talked about in Sunday school, right? The people will worship their king. And that's the next thing that will happen, is the worship in his kingdom. Look at verses 16 through 19. Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. It will be that whichever the family of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. If the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. It will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Verse 19, this will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Now, do you remember what I told you a couple weeks ago that when Martin Luther tried to understand this passage, he said what? I give up because this makes absolutely no sense. And this is why I remind you that this is what we hold these things what? Very loosely, okay? And so, because when we read this, it's like this all of a sudden doesn't make sense. Okay? Let me try to explain to you. And again, I've given you primarily a, a, some symbolic, but mainly literal interpretation of this because it just makes no sense if we look at it symbolically. But taken literally, it reads like after he comes, there's going to be what in his kingdom? Worship, but also some what? disobedience. They're not coming up to worship, right? It reads like that. Now, this falls in line with what is called a premillennial view of a literal thousand-year reign of Christ. Go to Revelation chapter 19. This records Jesus' second coming, verses 11 through 15. In a minute, you're going to see where this reads like there's not going to be a thousand-year reign, that we're going to go right into the eternal state and just worship him. So it goes back and forth, okay? And no one can really know for sure. But the best minds, this is what uh, they've come up with. Verses 11 through 15, Revelation 19. This is the second coming. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The robe dipped in blood means the many wars that he's battles he's fought in the past. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. Now, verse 15 says, how is he going to rule then after his kingdom is established? With a rod of iron, right? Now, that seems to support Zechariah 14, 16 through 19. 
as does what falls in Revelation chapter 20. You're already in Revelation 19, look at chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. Then, again, a reference to time, right? I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So when Jesus Christ comes, he defeats Satan, binds him, and throws him into where? What's prepared for him? And the angel, that punishment, the judgment sheep goes, yes. Verse 3, and he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who were beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. So which resurrection do you want to be a part of? The first one. Okay. Over them, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. That is your destiny. That's who you are. You're, you're a believer. This child, you're a priest. You will reign with him forever. Okay? So you want to be part of that first resurrection. All right? When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore, and they came up on the broad plain of the earth, probably where? Where's the broad plain of the earth? Arabah, that 40-mile area, right? And surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. Which is, what is the beloved city? Jerusalem. And the watch. Fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This reads like, when you read Zechariah, like this right here, which is called a... It's, it's historic pre-millennialism, but basically... Jesus Christ comes. This is where we are right now. Right in here would be, you know, the, the signs and stuff happens, the Great Tribulation. He comes again to battle of Armageddon. Oh, we just went through this. He reigns for a thousand years. Satan is destroyed. Then comes the, the new heavens and a new earth and the great white throne judgment and all that. And we go into the eternal state. That's what it sort of reads like when you read Zechariah. Now, if this view is correct... Believers will worship the Lord, and they're going to keep what is called the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. Now, what's the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles? Do you remember that at all? Remember when that was instituted? Anybody want to take a guess? When Israel was in the wilderness, what did God have them do to remember his presence? Well, yeah, he was there with them, but he also created a they would make these, take a, I think it's like a week, they would live in booths. They'd make these little tabernacles, little booths, and they would live in them because they'd be alone, like they were in the wilderness, reminding them that God's presence was with them when they were in the wilderness. It's a way for us to remember, okay? Now, again, this feast celebrated the time when God dwelt with Israel in the wilderness. It served as a reminder of God's presence. In the future, what Zechariah is saying is God in the person of his son will once again dwell among his people. 
only this time forever. And if the nations disobey, they will suffer the consequences. What does it, verses 16 to 19 say? God won't bring rain on them, or he'll send a plague if they, don't, if they live near water. Now, here's the problem with this. The phrase, the Feast of Booths, is used to describe worship, not in the thousand-year reign, but in the eternal state of the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation 21. Look at verse chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This happens after Satan is defeated at the end of the thousand years. Okay. Then watch. The first heaven and the first earth passed away. And there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, watch this, the tabernacle or the, the booth of God is among men. And he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. This fits with this type of view. This is not working anymore. Frank, what did you do? Can you advance it? Nope. I guess you can't know this. Can you put it up there manually? The next slide? Okay, next one. Yeah. See, it, when you read that part, it makes you think that there's not going to be any thousand-year reign. Okay? And then you're going to go at the battle of Armageddon, and, you know, you're going to go right into the eternal state, and there'll be the great wine throne judgment, the new heavens and the earth come, all of that. So you see how confusing Zechariah is with all this? So it reads one way, and then it reads another way, okay? Which is why the theologians, they go back and forth on this, all right? Because if he's in the eternal state and he's ruling, will there be any disobedience to him there? It never says that. There'll be no plague, no suffering, none of that. So where does that happen? And what, what in the world is Zechariah talking about? Well, there are those that say it's talking about a, a literal thousand-year reign when he will have to rule that way, as Revelation 19.15 says. The point being, is it really is it that important? Like I said this morning in Sunday school, make sure you're in. Make sure you've, you're right with the Lord, that, that you are, you know, hopefully, either you're going to endure and he's going to come in your lifetime and you will be caught up in the air, or you're going to come with him because you already passed away. Now, let's briefly close with what will life be like in his kingdom. There we go. Verses 20 and 21 of Zechariah. In that day shall there be upon the bells of the horses holiness unto the Lord. And the pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yea, every pot in Jerusalem and in Judah shall be holiness unto the Lord of hosts. And all that they sacrifice shall come out and take of them shall come and take of them and boil in them. And in that day, there shall be no more a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. Now the phrase holiness unto the Lord, that was engraved on a gold plate attached to who? The high priest's turban. It signified that he was set apart from every other man and he had a unique, uniquely holy function. 
In other words, there is no one like the high priest. Zechariah prophesies that everything, even mundane and ordinary things like the belts that decorate horses in common pots and pans, will be as holy as the high priest and the altar bulls once were to Israel in days gone by. In other words, the kingdom, his kingdom, won't be like the world is today with this division between sacred and secular. Everything will be sacred. And the promise that there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord is a euphemistic way of saying that there will be nothing morally and spiritually unclean. The Canaanite came to refer to as a degenerate person. In other words, there will be no drag queens there. All right? In the kingdom, the world will be considered holy to the Lord. So that's a brief taste of what Zechariah tells us life will be like in the kingdom. Now, what I want to close with is this. Everything we talked about so far, I don't want you to have any fear of this. Because speaking of the day of the Lord, this is what the Apostle Paul wrote. For God has not destined us for wrath. Let me explain what he means by wrath. We saw the wrath of God and in, 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 in what he's going to do. This doesn't mean that you may not, if you're lodged or something, that you may not die. You may suffer persecution and have to endure it. That's not the wrath of God. If you suffer for following Jesus Christ, you are not cursed, but you are blessed. And if you have the privilege and honor of dying for that, great is your reward in heaven. But his wrath that we've talked about is not, will not happen to you. You're not appointed for that. But for what? You obtain salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. So I don't fear because I know that I'm what? Not going to, not appointed to wrath. And I don't fear because he has told us in advance what's going to happen. Which is what I've been telling you. And so I want you to see again, like a wedding, these events have been pre-planned. God's going to bring it all about. And it's our responsibility in, in order to be ready to know somewhat, generally speaking, the order of events, right? And now you know, which means you're going to be held accountable and responsible for those things, okay? And so thus, I want you to be ready. That's your, your thing for this week. Know these things. Get ready. Be ready. Amen? The more I study this stuff at the end times, the more I realize how it's all told us in the New Old Testament. It's just, you put the pieces together in the New Testament and it gives it a, even a fuller meaning and so on. So, yes. Well, let's stand. We're going to close with a song this morning. And then we'll be on our way. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. May our worship of you continue to be pleasing. Thank you for telling us how things are going to end. And that we have a future and a hope. 